With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to say that we launched our new and improved newsletter. Every other week, we send you a short email jam-packed with actionable advice from the lives of our founders alongside other exclusive content. Basically, it's your toolkit to become a better leader. If you'd like to get in on the ground floor, visit findingfounders.co slash subscribe or check the link in the show notes. All right, let's get into it. Hey, so you're about to hear an interview with Rabbi Gay. She's recording out of Senegal, so the audio is a little rough, but the story is amazing, so stick through it. Okay, here's the episode. One of my students, when I was there, invited me to her house. Her, their house was the size of my bedroom. I remember her saying, like, I sleep here, and, and next to me is my kitchen, and then turn over there, and that's my parents' room. And and I was just like, how is this fair? How is it that in the U.S. we complain about not having hot water? Little simple things, but this young girl has to somehow manage to have the strength to wake up every day, go to school. It, it just really exposed me to two true realities that a lot of student face and also this it's a gap between the rich and poor was just so in your face. I know I can't save the world and I can't even save my whole country, but what can I do within my own community? It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. Does it matter how badly you got beat this Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Uh, my name is Rafi Gay, and I am the founder and CEO of Teach for Senegal. So before you uh, started Teach for Senegal, you were actually in Senegal and not the U.S. So could you talk to me about what that transition was like going from Senegal to the U.S.? Yeah, so my family and I uh, immigrated to the U.S. when I was between the ages of seven and eight. And the reason why we had to immigrate to the U.S. was because there was a border dispute between Senegal and neighboring country of Mauritania. A lot of the people in that area were, you know, either being killed off or being forced to, you know, leave their homes, being displaced. So that caused my um, father to seek asylum in the U.S. You know, when I was young, it was honestly didn't know what was happening at that time. All you know is like one day you're in, you know, your village, your town, life is pretty simple and normal. And then the next day you're like on a plane and you're going to different countries and hearing different languages. And like, honestly, it sounds weird to see people who look nothing like you color wise. You know, I just remember being on the plane and I was so amazed by this, sound so bad, but this white woman sitting next to me on the plane. I could not believe like what I was seeing. It was my first time actually seeing like someone who was black and I was trying to figure out like what happened to her. 
so where, where we had settled in Phoenix was almost, we called it like refugee town. It was where they placed all the refugees in Phoenix. And it was like, all of our neighbors were refugees. There were some from Sudan, Somalia. The school that we went to had a lot of refugees. We were all kind of put in a classroom. It was called the welcome room. And it was just like all these young refugees were around the same age and we were all put in the class and taught. This is how you use the toilet. This is how you say hello. This is how you use a fridge. Because a lot of these things were very, very new to us. Like, I mean, I came from a place where like that didn't exist. We didn't have Western toilets. We didn't have fridges. And all of a sudden you're just picked up and then you're just put in another country where like everything is like 21st century. Once we got settled in the U.S., it was very, very difficult. I realized early on, like, I needed to learn English for the sake of my parents, uh, especially my mom. You know, when you have parents at your conferences and, like, nobody knows your local language, so you're like, well, who's going to translate? And so you kind of have to pick up pieces and learn. What were those parent-teacher conferences like? Do you remember? It, it was definitely awkward. I'm not gonna lie, I wasn't the best of students. So when we would have parents at conference and you know, the teacher would be like, tell your mom that you did this, then you know, have to fabricate and be like, she said I'm a great student. It was very awkward because <laughs> because the teachers had no idea what you're telling your mom. Your mom had no idea what you're telling your, your teacher. And so there was just that lack of communication. When you needed support, it was kind of hard for, you know, your mom to be there or your parents to be there when they don't know what's happening. And then it's also difficult for your teacher to be there for you when they themselves don't know what's happening in your life. So it was just me in the middle trying to navigate this new life. It was definitely difficult. And I think that um, at the time, I didn't realize how much of a responsibility that I had where I was a mediator. And to me, it was normal. But now that I think back on it, I was like, oh, my God, I I had to really grow up fast. Do you remember any time that the, the translation was like very much needed? My older, older brother had felt ill when I was in middle school and he had valley fever. It was really hard for my parents to comprehend what was going on and the doctors didn't have, you know, other people who spoke the same language as us. You know, the doctor was just telling me what's happening with my brother. You know, you guys should have brought him to the doctor earlier on because the state of his lungs are so weak that we don't know, you know, if we're going to be able to save him. It was very hard to have to tell your parents, like, hey, you know, because you didn't bring your son earlier on to the hospital or because you didn't notice all these symptoms, that he might actually pass away um, from something that could be easily cured. My brother passed away. I don't know, it was very traumatic. For me, now that I realized that it was something that had a huge impact to my life and something that I would wish no immigrant child on. But I realized as I meet other refugees and first-generation graduates that this is the story of a lot of us. 
There's so much responsibility put on you in such a young age and you have to grow up so fast. But it also, I think, gives purpose too, right? You go through all this pain and the only way to move through it is find purpose in it because otherwise it just seems like it doesn't matter or you have, you have to find a reason for it to matter. Can you tell me about when you traveled to India and, and why you did that? When I was in college, I was preparing to be a lawyer. I was preparing to make money. Yeah, nonprofit or teaching was nothing that I, I thought of, but it was always something that I was, was doing on the side. My junior year of college, I traveled to India where I volunteered for six weeks. That's where the journey began with tackling educational equity. 30 of us all crammed into one room. There's no AC. We're all sitting on top of each other. One textbook for like five students. Some of the students don't have backpacks. Some of the students don't have pencils. And I'm supposed to teach them and they're supposed to be able to focus and concentrate. And this is just like what I could see from the outside. Some of these students hadn't ate all day. Some of these students don't have a home to go to. It just really touched my heart. And I mean, I remember going home and I would just like cry. Like, because <laughs> I'm just like, it's not fair that these kids have to live in these conditions. It was there that I realized that, wow, um, and if we want to change the society, we have to start with the educational system there. One of my students, when I was there, invited me to her house because um, she was just like, I love you. I want you to meet my family. It was kind of like an honor. And her, their house was the size of my bedroom. She was telling me she sleeps in the kitchen. Just so proudly showing me her house. And, you know, I and I was so appreciative of it. But I remember her saying, like, I sleep here and, and next to me is my kitchen. And then turn over there and that's my parents' room. And, and I was just like... How is this fair? How is it that, you know, in the U.S., we complain about not having hot water or little simple things, but this young girl has to live in this environment and has to somehow manage to have the strength to wake up every day, go to school. One of my students, him and his sibling were walking to school and he got hit by a car and died on his way to school. When they announced it. A lot of the students, they kind of just like picked up and moved on. And I was just like, did you guys just not hear that one of your classmates died? Um, and they're just like, you know, it's happened so often. Like they lose a lot of their friends. They lose a lot of their relatives to them. They become immune to death. It's a gap between the rich and poor. It was just so in your face. It was just right there. And it's the same in, in Senegal. There's no really middle class. There's just like either you're rich or you're poor. And when you're poor, we can really tell. Being in this and seeing Indian children go through this, I, I, I'd imagine maybe you would be thinking like, there's just massive inequities happening here. But what about my, my own country? Like, is there anything I can do over there as well? After my India trip, I really began to do more research on education equity, specifically in my country. I know I can't save the world and I can't even save my whole country, but what can I do within my own community that will provide opportunity? So many children in Senegal don't have the opportunity to go to school, or when they don't do go to school, they don't have access to quality education that actually nurtures their whole being. And that's where my, my journey with Teach for America began. After my trip to India, 
somebody from Teacher America recruitment team was asking if I'd be interested in joining Teacher America. And growing up in South Phoenix, I actually had Teacher America teachers. A lot of the inequities that were happening in Senegal were actually also happening in, in Phoenix as well with black and brown children. And so I, I was recruited and I joined Teacher America and I, I had the opportunity to teach in my own community that I lived in for two years. So I was working with kids that were like me. We were just coming to America and we're learning how to read and write. And we're also serving as translators for their parents. And I, and I thank God every day that I had that chance because a lot of these kids were able to finally have someone who understood what they were going through. How do you think your experience benefited them in a way that maybe you didn't have when you were growing up? I can't say this enough. Representation matters. And I remember uh, my last year as an English language teacher, I had a girl who was her, her name was Emily. Emily was from Mexico and she was was the oldest girl out of her her family and uh, her mom didn't speak any English and her mom was a a janitor um, at some, some warehouse and my mom was a janitor at the airport and she missed so many days as well and I just couldn't understand why. I remember I reached out to her, I called her in um, during recess and I was like, you are missing like half the school year, you're about to get kicked out. And I asked her, I was like, they coming up to take care of your younger siblings and, and she like cried and was like, yeah, um, when my mom works, sometimes like we don't have anybody to watch my younger siblings who are like, I think like three or four at that time. And so she had to stay home and kind of babysit while her mom was at work. We went to the, the principal together and we you know, talked about her situation and what we can do to you know, help her. And so we were able to work out some action plan for her to where she couldn't, didn't miss as many days. And you were able to meet her where she was. Like, I think that's such a, a, an important thing in education is there, there's like these two simultaneous things that you're trying to do or that some teachers try to do where it's like you're trying to teach to the middle of the class, but then teaching to the middle of the class doesn't actually take into account how different everyone's experience is. And it seems like good teachers like you uh, are able to empathize with those, those individual students and still teach to a group, but also offer individual help based on, on what's needed. And it seems in that case, you were able to do that. And so I imagine that this Teach for America experience, your, your experience with the NGOs in India made you realize, okay, I can do this. So how did you start Teach for Senegal? That's exactly how it happened, actually. I was, after Teach for America, I was like, I think I have enough knowledge um, and I really want to go back to Senegal and do something for Senegalese children. I was really close to the director of Teach for America Phoenix, and I remember texting her. I was just like, how can you help me start Teach for Senegal? And she was just like, what? And I was like, yeah, so I want to start Teach for Senegal after my two years. And she was like, sure. So oftentimes in a lot of African countries, we get NGOs from Western countries or or countries who have no idea of the cultural context of the local context. And they come with their ideas and their almost like white savior mentality and are like, we are going to save you. Without actually knowing how the community operates. Exactly. We have all the answers. We, we, I have my master's in seven. So let me show you the way of doing this. And 
not realizing these people have been experiencing equity for years. I'm pretty sure there's people within the community who have been trying to solve it themselves. And so for me, I was the first point of getting of getting teacher friends all started is I wanted to get into local communities and I wanted to understand what they were experiencing and what were some other organizations that were locally rooted that were already trying to solve the issues that were within. It's those who are experiencing inequity who have the solutions already and oftentimes they just need the tools and the resources to really uh, amplify their work. And so I worked alongside, I sat for two years after my Teach for America. I was lucky enough to get a grant from Echo and Green to work on Teach for Senegal. I, for two years, worked on contextualizing the Teach for All model to fit Teach for Senegal. What we realize is the Senegalese educational system is not broken. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's a colonial system. It was a, a form of miseducation. It was a way to bring in Senegalese students and have um, them come out as French. And it wasn't an educational system that was meant for all. Um, and, and it was purposely set up that way so that you'll have some who... It was a way of uh, a means of control. The educated ones can control the uneducated so with Teach for Senegal, we really wanted to design a model that um, liberated Senegalese communities and children, one that brought back indigenous knowledge. In our communities long ago, before the French came, before the year, you know, the Europeans came, we were about nurturing the whole child. It was up to the community to nurture this child and make sure that they have the knowledge and the resources so that when they're adults, they can move on and live independently. Education was not a means of standardized testing. Like we don't, that's not native to us. It wasn't about testing. It wasn't about objective. It wasn't about school. And also it's probably not useful for the community to just focus on objective uh, standardized testing. It's not useful for any community. I mean, it's been proven that standardized testing is, does nothing for any community, but um, especially in our community, like what is the point of learning about Victor Hugo or Napoleon? What would be more helpful is for them to learn survival skills and for them to think about the problems in their community and come up with solutions or like problem solving skills. You've discovered all these problems and you have a new approach to solving them. Where's Teach for Senegal today? So today we are in the middle of recruiting our first cohort of young leaders who will be teaching in their communities. And we're, we're super excited. These are fellows who are so excited to give back to their community, so excited to teach kids in local languages, to bring back indigenous knowledge, to have a more student-centered curriculum. Yeah, it's, it's our first cohort. We're a little nervous, but we feel like after two years of research and after two years of really planning that... Uh, It'll be one for the books. <laughs> yeah. And also uh, this, so this actually reminds me of, um, we did a series in Puerto Rico last year and we were looking at how entrepreneurial communities came out of the 2017 hurricanes. So like the, the 2017 hurricanes absolutely wiped out Puerto Rican infrastructure and they were trying to rebuild. What they realized is that like, like giving money to outside organizations actually had a marginal impact on building up the community. And so what they started doing is they started creating accelerators 
for Puerto Rican entrepreneurs to solve Puerto Rican problems. And like putting the money in the hands of the people, in the hands of the community, drastically, drastically increased the the level by which they were able to recover. And it seems like what you have here is you have that base, like the educational base to uplift the entire community. After you've laid this base, what do you hope for the future, 5, 10, 20 years down the line, once this program is, is, is put in place? For me, honestly, I hope, it sounds so cliche, but I hope in 25 years that Teach for Senegal does not exist. I, I truly hope that we are able to achieve our vision of one day every child being able to fulfill their full potential. In, in five, 10 years, I would love to see Senegalese uh, or local communities collectively working together to tackle their own inequities. I would love to see more entrepreneurs who are proud to get up on that global stage, who are proud to speak their local language, who are proud to say, I'm from this place, I'm come from this tribe, and I'm here to tackle whatever inequity that they are. And so that's my my goal or my vision for the Teacher Senegal. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez, Tomas Renteria, Lauren Yamada, and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiar, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Lett, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, and Marie Vaughn. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Alexandra Huntalis Adams. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from... To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.